Hi, I'm Stacey Jacobson. Thanks so much for joining us on The Pulse, where we bring you insights on the economy, global markets, and all the complexities of wealth management. This week, we're introducing our Inflection Point segment, where Senior Managing Director Brian Halusim interviews entrepreneurs about pivotal moments in their business journeys. Today's guest is Jamie Schmidt of Schmidt's Naturals. Jamie's story is remarkable. Back in 2010, she started making naturally-based personal care products in her Portland kitchen. Now, seven years later, Schmidt's Naturals was selling to over 30,000 retailers in 30 different countries. And then in 2017, she sold the company to Unilever for a nine-figure sum. Since then, she hasn't stopped. She co-founded the VC firm Color Capital, which they'll talk about more in their interview. And she wrote the book, Supermaker, Crafting Business on Your Own Terms. And Forbes has said, if you have an idea, follow Schmidt's playbook. As we'll hear in her discussion, it wasn't always smooth sailing. There were certainly some rough patches along the way, and she had plenty of big decisions to make, including whether or not to take on a venture capital partner, which, by the way, she did not. So how did Jamie know it was the right time to sell, and how did she choose her buyer? We'll find out when we come back right after this short break. Stay with us. Claire Gola, host of Inspired Investing, a podcast for those engaged in the nonprofit, philanthropy, and broader social sectors. Be sure to tune in to our latest episode where Mary Ellen Gleason shares wisdom she's gathered from more than two decades leading social sector transformations. Welcome back to The Pulse. Here's Senior Managing Director Brian Halusim talking with Jamie Schmidt of Schmidt's Naturals. Well, Jamie, First of all, I want to thank you for joining me on the Inflection Point. I appreciate I know you just got back from traveling internationally, but I'm really looking forward to this dialogue. I am too. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. I, I have to tell you that I was on a quest a number of years ago for finding uh, an aluminum-free deodorant, first for my, for my kids. They're all athletes, and I found it really hard until I ran into your company, and my wife and I first became users, and then my four kids all use them. I want to start there because I feel like you solved a problem that maybe a lot of people didn't know existed. And I'd love to get a sense of how you even came up with this. Um, you know, what was the impetus for starting the Schmidt Natural Deodorant brand? And maybe we could go there. Yeah, it's great to hear that your family is a family of users. Thank you. I started Schmitz back in 2010. Um, I was living in Portland, Oregon, and I think many um, are aware that Portland is a city of makers, creators, artists. And at the time when I moved there, you know, I didn't have a plan to start a deodorant business, um, but I did have a plan to get my hands dirty and figure out what I was good at and what I liked doing. I was at a pivotal moment in my career where I had been working my way up the corporate ladder in a different job and just wasn't feeling it. And I knew that it wasn't the long-term thing for me, I just, but I didn't know what that looked like. And so um, being in Portland, I had a lot of opportunity to try different things. I also got pregnant and I was paying closer attention to the products I was using on my skin um, and started making a bunch of my own things, lotions, sunscreens, deodorant, and was using them more just, you know, just for, for my own personal enjoyment. Um, but then as I started using them, I realized they were, they were pretty good and they smelled nice. They were effective and they were really, really clean. And I felt um, that more people deserved to try them. So I started taking them out to the farmer's markets and that's when things started to, to take off. As you're scaling the business now, 
there's always so many challenges and obstacles that you run into. And I'd love to get an understanding from you of, you know, what some of those challenges were, how you actually got to the point that you, you know, you did where the company was really scaling and growing and and what that looked like. Yeah. Every stage of the company had different challenges. Um, but I think the consistent theme was that I didn't know what the heck I was doing. <laughs> it was the first business I'd built. You know, I didn't have a background. I, I had a degree in business actually, but um, didn't take it very seriously, to be honest, because I never expected myself to become an entrepreneur. Uh, so I sort of jump, jumped into this. You know, I didn't come from a family of entrepreneurs. I didn't associate with many. And so I really had to learn everything along the way, you know, from administrative side of things, the financials, accounting, but then of course the operations in terms of, uh, you know, production, manufacturing, uh, supply chain and all that. Um, And one thing that I think put me in an especially unique position as a new entrepreneur is that I had built my own factory, you know, not the building itself, but had leased out a space and, you know, brought in all the equipment and the machinery and set up the assembly lines and things. And so I didn't outsource my manufacturing. I, I started it in my kitchen on the stovetop and then ended up moving to um, a large space, you know, actually multiple moves over a few short years. Um, and there was just so much to learn, you know, in terms of setting up a, a manufacturing line, right? Like, what does that look like? What's the way to be the most efficient? And and with that, I actually was bootstrapping the business too. And so I did not have an abundance of capital. I had to be very mindful and strategic in what I was spending my money on. And that gets a little tricky when you're investing in things like machinery. Yeah, it does. I want to talk a little bit about the capital part, because you didn't go the conventional way, if I understood correctly, where people go out and, you know, obviously looking for VC capital and stuff like that. Talk a little bit about the journey of how you dealt with the need as you're scaling to, you know, fund all those endeavors. Yeah. In the first couple of years, you know, I, I really took things slowly. It was more of a kind of a side hustle. So I had a couple jobs on the side, but I was strategic in what those jobs were. I wanted to work in the industry and I wanted to, you know, learn more um, and position myself to be at an advantage as I did continue to mature as an entrepreneur. And so I got um, a position at a local retailer so I could understand, you know, the inner workings of retail. I worked for an e-commerce company so I could understand what that all meant and what that looked like behind the scenes. And so um, I had a little bit of income there and I you know, considered that income the seed money for the business. So that sort of, you know, kickstarted the original expenses. Um, but then it was just a matter of recycling profits, you know, immediately back into the business. But to do that, I had to be really intentional with, you know, how, who and, and when I was hiring. You know, any any purchase had, you know, a lot of thought had to go into it and they had to really deliver. And as the business continued to grow, you know, again, recycling money back in. Further on, you know, about five years in, I, didn't, I ended up taking out a, a small bank loan. Um, but never took on VC money. You know, there was, there was certainly some interest along the way. But I think, you know, I really, I saw it as a distraction. You know, when I did get that interest, I just wasn't, I wasn't interested in pursuing it because one, I didn't want anybody to answer to. Two, it was um, frankly very overwhelming. <laughs> I didn't know how to have those conversations and I didn't want to distract myself with it. And thirdly, I didn't understand yet the the major potential of the business. I didn't know where I wanted it to go. I never, you know, jumped in with a plan to to scale it and to sell it. I just really enjoyed what I was doing. And I never, you know, looked too far ahead and thought of the, the bigger potential. And so with that mindset, I think it positioned me in a way where, you know, having um, a lack of capital was actually, um, you know, work to my advantage. As you look back and you think about, you know, where you are now and what what it took to get there, 
I know it's hard to pick one or two things, but but what were the one or two things that were the catalyst where you realized, wow, this is really happening? I mean, our customer base was so loyal um, and kind of cult-like. <laughs> and a lot of that started at the farmer's markets and building those relationships in person. Um, as the business scaled, you know, I continued to keep the customer at the forefront. And I think that was just the key, right? Because I was competing against some of these the bigger names in deodorant that didn't have those relationships. And But it was challenging, you know, as you grow to, to keep that. I think what also helped was, you know, we started pushing this message around natural, clean, but then we realized, you know, we were actually competing with some of these bigger names in deodorant, the more conventional uh, brands like like Dove and Axe and Secret, who weren't pushing that that clean message as much. And so, we wanted those customers, right? We didn't want just the the, the natural enthusiasts um, and you know the green consumer. Um, and so, in recognizing that, you know, we started to open up our minds to different distribution channels. So we were willing to sell in retailers like Costco, Walmart, Target where some of the other natural brands that we were competing against weren't, weren't interested in those channels. I really saw an opportunity to make naturals mainstream, um, but there's a challenge that comes with that messaging, you know, and something that, that's going to resonate with customers outside of that niche. And Jamie, what made you decide, okay, you know what, it's time to exit, and maybe you could share the process there? Yeah, you know, I wasn't shopping for buyers. We were certainly at a turning point in the business, though. We had established distribution across, you know, some major, major retailers and, you know, money was certainly tight. It was all tied up on shelves. Uh, so for example, you know, launching in Costco, Walmart and Target within just a few months of each other, all our money was sitting in inventory on shelves. And so it was, you know, either let's, we do need to actively raise capital or we need to go get more bank loans, or maybe there's a strategic partner um, and started to get some interest and started to take that a little more seriously. So we had uh, somebody helping us broker the deal and having their support, um, you know, we, they were able to, to go shop around and get interest from potential buyers. Um, you know, there were several we, we were entertaining. Uh, Unilever was the one that really caught my eye. I was attracted to a lot that they could offer, you know, of course, um, greater distribution, you know, being a huge global company. Really sophisticated consumer insights, of course, their supply chain, capital. <laughs> and then, you know, holding a unique position in their portfolio, I think, was really attractive to me because they had other deodorant brands, of course, but they didn't have any natural ones. Um, so I knew that when we were joining them, we'd be joining a family of other deodorant brands, which could be helpful. And I think the biggest piece was they knew what we were good at and they didn't have intentions of shaking that up. Sometimes in acquisitions, you know, the, the parent company will come in and just change everything. But they recognized, you know, our strengths were in brand building and marketing, and there were certain teams that they just wanted to leave alone and actually learn from. Um, so that was really attractive to me, too. Yeah, and so post-exit, what did life look like? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I did was take a deep breath and think, what the heck just happened over the last seven years? And then I realized, you know, there was more I wanted to do. Um, wrote the book, uh, started an investment fund called Color. You know, even though I didn't take capital, I saw an opportunity to invest my capital into other companies. Um, and having been an active operator, I felt like I was coming from a unique angle, right? Because I'd been through it. And so I think that gave me um, an edge as an investor. Um, and then have just done some advising. And then today I'm, you know, still doing some consulting and things and, and still investing in the consumer space, but also have opened my interest a little bit to, to this kind of Web3 crypto world as well. 
Yeah, and that's, I think, the impetus a little bit behind Color Capital. Um, do you mind if we dive just a little bit into that? I know it's it's quite complicated. I was looking at it and trying to get it, but I, I understand for the most part, you're an active investor and you're supporting other brands coming up, but there's a lot more to it. Yeah, you know, we it's when I say we, it's it's just my husband um, and I, Chris Cantino is his name. We He had helped me scale Schmitz. Um, he really led our marketing and communications. And so together we have, you know, a wealth of experience. And it's great because we're a family office. We don't have any other investors to answer to or, you know, to, to get approval from. And so we can take our time with things. We can, you know, vet them as much as we need. We have a, a back office who helps with diligence. But, you know, for the most part, it's just the two of us making decisions. But we're really passionate about, of course, consumer products. Um, you know, that's where their expertise is. Yeah, it's fantastic. There's a common theme of... Uh you guys making sure there's no one to answer to. I do want to just ask one final question. You know, as a female founder, and we run into a lot of consumer brands now that are run by strong female founders, is there a sort of commonality in the kinds of companies that you're investing in to help other female founders? Just kind of want to get an idea of like what the themes are. Yeah. I, you know, when we started Color, our fund, we were targeting specifically um, founders that were, you know, overlooked, generally women, people of color. Um, and that's still very much, you know, in our thinking. Uh, but we've also found that people starting amazing businesses are, are often people, you know, from those backgrounds, which is really cool. And so I think we just surround ourselves with the right people that we see opportunities where others don't. I do get particularly excited about women founders. You know, they come to me often and um, with different types of struggles, right? Like that we can't pretend that, you know, being um, an entrepreneur is the same across the board, right? As women, we generally are just more overlooked and underestimated. And so I'm always there to help um, kind of give that extra boost of confidence. Yeah. Well, your story's amazing. I really appreciate the time that we spent today. It was my pleasure. Thank you. That was the Inflection Point segment host, Brian Halusin, interviewing Jamie Schmidt of Schmidt's Naturals. To follow up on how and when an entrepreneur decides to sell her business, I'm here with Sean Sullivan, Associate Director in Wealth Strategies. He co-authored the Bernstein blog entitled, When to Sell Your Business, Take the Money and Run. Sean, thanks so much for joining us today. We just heard a great interview between Brian and Jamie. And as a follow-up to that, I wanted to discuss a little bit about the blog that you wrote and what some of the factors are that go into a business owner who is thinking about selling their business or at least ramping up to do so. So look, there's so much more that goes into that decision besides just the finances. So let's start there. Let's talk a little bit about how somebody starts to think it's the right time and then how do they start to actually look at it from a valuation and analytical perspective. Absolutely. And Stacey, thank you for having me. Excited to be here today. I think that question around when's the right time to sell my business is arguably the most common question in my day to day. And I think what really makes business owners struggle with the answer is that it is two-pronged. As you mentioned, there's the obvious financial aspect. This could be a considerable amount of money. And I think we heard that in Jamie's interview talking about having all of her product and essentially all of her net worth stuck on shelves. That's daunting. Uh, but there's also a very personal element to this. And, you know, I think you also heard that in Jamie's story when she's talking about, I used to make this deodorant on my stovetop at home, and now I'm setting up a manufacturing plant. Like, that's a big difference. And for owners to part ways with something that they've taken from the stovetop all the way to a factory floor is really difficult. And I think where we start on the non-financial side at Bernstein 
is with our family engagement and family governance teams who do a great job of sitting down with business owners to unlock those values and priorities behind the money. So after a sale event or taking some chips off the table, what will these assets allow you to do? And how can you position yourself for that next phase beyond the business? Yeah, and that's such an important place to start, right? So understanding the motivation behind selling and then getting into the numbers a little bit. For business owners that do have an offer to sell or even multiple offers, it's often hard to quantify the difference between all of them. So how does Bernstein's proprietary modeling help? Yes, we like to use our modeling to demystify what some of those offers may mean for the business owner. So we like to use the word pre-experience, but what we do is we take the deal structure or multiple deal structures and we'll run analytics to show the business owner not just what today looks like, but how the deal will impact them and their family over the next 5, 10, 20, 30, even 40 years. And so we're able to take that data Uh, looking at current deals, or if there's an opportunity to wait and say, can I grow this business a little further, we could look at that as well. Yeah. And it's often extremely helpful to have a lot of different complicating factors almost just laid out so somebody can look at it quickly and help to make a decision and move forward. So Sean, after you've done your deep work on the analytical side, If it comes out that there's a significant monetary benefit to actually holding on to the business for a little bit longer, how do you talk about that with a business owner? Because often on paper, it can seem obvious that maybe they should hold, but there are certainly some risks associated with it as well. And so the way that we help business owners think through those risks is sales are often priced on what we call a multiple basis. And as the name would imply, that's a multiple of a metric at the business. Typically speaking, it's based on something called EBITDA, which is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. A fancy way to say, how much money does the business make? So for example, if I have a business and my EBITDA is $5 million and the market's willing to pay me a multiple of five times, my company would be worth $25 million. If I wait five or 10 years into the future to sell my company, and I'm able to improve my EBITDA to say $6 million, and the market's still willing to pay five times, I could get $30 million. On the flip side, if something happens in the economy outside of my control, the market might only be willing to offer a four times multiple, in which case I would be selling for $24 million, which is slightly less than I would receive today. So there are these trade-offs, and the way that we help investors think through that is by showing them a range of multiples and EBITDA or whatever metric they want to look at to show how the business would need to grow where even if some of these things they can't control work against them and they could sell into the market in the future at an attractive valuation. Look, I can't let you go without bringing up taxes. I think that's a major concern for all business owners. So when we think about the tax environment, there's income taxes and there's estate taxes, right? Can you just give us an overview as to how we address those issues? Yes, and I think the two of us could talk for a while on this, but to keep it simple today, as soon as you incorporate your business, you have a silent partner, whether you like it or not, and that's Uncle Sam. Um, On the income and estate tax side, though, the one thing business owners should know is just because you're selling an entity for a large amount of money, it doesn't mean that you're resigned to paying an incredibly large income or estate tax bill. There are things that you can do to mitigate both of these. So on the income tax side of things, it is a little bit harder to manage around, 
But owners should think through options like qualified small business stock, which can allow you to avoid up to $10 million of gain or 10 times your basis, whatever's larger. Investors should also think about making charitable gifts with shares of their company, which is a more advantageous and tax-efficient way to make gifts. There are also various trust structures that may help save on things like state income taxes as the deal's going through, or even multiply that QSBS, Qualified Small Business, exclusion that we mentioned earlier. And to just quickly touch on the estate tax side, it's really important for business owners to engage their trust and attorneys, CPAs, and financial advisors because there are a plethora of options and opportunities to do some really significant planning, especially before a deal closes. Look, what I'm hearing and what we know is that the planning that goes in prior to the transaction is essential, and it can actually increase the amount that you get to keep along the way. Absolutely. And the earlier that you're able to engage in that planning, the more leverage you have to save on both the income and the estate tax side of the equation. All right, Sean, thanks so much for joining us today and sharing all of your insightful tips. Thanks for having me, Stacey. Check out our show notes for the link to the Bernstein blog Sean co-authored with director in our Wealth Strategies group, Andrew Bishop. When to sell your business, take the money and run. There, you'll also find a link to the extended interview with Senior Managing Director Brian Halusim of the Inflection Point segment and his guest, Jamie Schmidt. Big thanks to Brian, Jamie, and Sean for coming on the show today. And thanks to everyone for tuning in. You'll hear from us again on March 28th when Women in Wealth's Beata Kerr is our guest host. We'll hear her interview with Jody Gunderson of AB Carval, where they discuss investment opportunities in clean energy. Make sure you catch it. Don't forget to subscribe to The Pulse by Bernstein wherever you get your podcasts to ensure you never miss a beat. I'm your host, Stacey Jacobson, wishing you a great rest of the week.